You feeling good this morning, church? So good. Okay. Uh, last time I spoke, I got to speak about a woman named Jochebed. And uh, what a privilege it was to try and bring a bit of honour to her life and her story. And it, it, uh, it's very fitting that today I get to uh, have the privilege of speaking about one of her sons, Moses. I'm sure you can probably nod your head this time going, yes, I've heard of him. Uh, a bit like different to last time. But uh, Moses is um, he's one of those guys that you could tell anyone about Moses and they kind of know a little bit about him. But Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith describes his life a little like this. It says in uh, Hebrews 11:23, it says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months. We learn about that. Uh, but but fi- by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose to go along with the Israelites and chose to... Uh, Turn away from all the blessings that would be in the house of uh, Pharaoh. But 27, by faith, he left Egypt. And by faith, the, um, the people passed through the Red Sea. It, it's all by faith. When we talk about Moses' life in Hebrews 11, everything that he did was prefaced by the, by the words, by faith. And uh, imagine if your life was like that. Imagine in years to come when all of us are shriveled and old and not alive, but people remember us and they talk about you and they say, oh, do you remember that they did this and they did it by faith? And an incredible uh, legacy to leave. And so it kind of baffled me that out of all the stories that I could have chosen about Moses, uh, he's like a smorgasbord for preachers. You could choose any story and it's going to be good. Uh, unlike Jochebed, I had to go into the deep dark web to even know if she existed. Uh, but Moses, I could pick anything. But it baffled me that the Lord would keep, he kept tugging my heart towards a story found in Numbers 20 about Moses and a rock. Pretty inspiring. Um, but he kept pulling my heart towards this and, and, it's not the kind of story that is, you're going to walk away and it inspires great faith to go and do great works, but it more serves as a great warning. And perhaps it teaches us that a life of faith doesn't always look like crazy big leaps. Rather, a life of faith is one that is made up of the small steps of obedience between the great leaps of faith. And so if you want to turn with me to Numbers 20, I'll be reading from the message. This is the story, Moses and the rock. I can feel your excitement. Uh, There was no water out there for the community. So they ganged up on Moses and Aaron and they attacked Moses. We wish we'd died with the rest of our brothers, died before God. Why didn't you, why'd you hold this congregation of God out here into the wilderness to die? People and cattle alike. And, and why did you take us out of Egypt in the first place? Dragging us into this miserable country. No grain, no figs. They sound like a hoot, these guys. Uh, no grape, no grapevines, pomegranates. And now not even water. So Moses and Aaron walked from the assembled congregation to the tent of meeting and they threw themselves face down on the ground and they saw the glory of God. 
God spoke to Moses and said, Take the staff, assemble the community, you and your brother Aaron. Speak to that rock that is right in front of them and it will give you water. You will bring water out of the rock for them. Congregation and cattle will both drink. Moses took the staff away from God's presence as commanded. So far, so good. He and Aaron rounded up the whole congregation in front of the rock. So far, so good. And then Moses said this, listen, you rebels. Do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? With that, Moses raised his arm and slammed his staff against the rock once and then twice. Water poured out and the congregation and cattle drank. But God said to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't trust me, you didn't treat me with holy reverence in front of the people of Israel, you too aren't going to lead the company into the land that I'm giving them. Moses had been leading the children of Israel for 38 years up until this point. And for anyone who knows the story, you will know that they are so close to the promised land. They are just two years more. We're nearly there. They're so close they could almost taste it. And it's kind of like we've been watching a marathon race throughout the whole Old Testament and we've watched them go over mountains and we've watched them part seas and we've watched miracles and the two guys who've been leading the pack the whole time, they are so close but 200 metres before the finish line, they fumble and everyone else goes through and they just, they don't make it. So what went wrong? Well, God gives them a very clear answer and he said, because you didn't trust me, And because you didn't treat me as holy. If an action like this can keep Moses from entering the promised land, then I think it's something that you and I should take note of. Today, through the lens of grace, we're going to work through these two reasons that that kept Moses out of the promised land. Lack of trust and lack of honour. I'm going to work backwards because honour has probably the most indicators there, but there's some clear indicators in the story that that give away that that Moses lacked to honour God as holy. And if you're taking notes, this is under the honour part. But the first thing that we see Moses do is, is he disobeys. One of the biggest indicators of dishonour is disobedience. You can fill in any illustration you want there. Child and parent, teacher and student, civilian and authority. Any illustration will work there, but but the biggest indicator of dishonor would be disobedience. And we read here that that's exactly what Moses did. He went to the Lord, great. He, He bowed down before him, great. He saw his glory, great. He heard exactly what God asked him to do. He said, speak to the rock. Instead, he went out and he struck the rock. He disobeyed. He clearly disobeyed. Why would Moses think that hitting the rock was was going to be any better than speaking to it? Surely it was easier to just speak to the rock rather than break a sweat, hitting that big stone, trying to break it up. Surely it was easier. But I think we can understand this bit of the story because Moses had been here before. 38 years before, Moses was in a situation which was nearly exactly the same. We find the first account of this story in Exodus 17. The people were whinging, just like this time. 
They were hungry just like this time. They were thirsty just like this time. And just like this time, Moses went to the Lord face down and he said, God, what should I do? What what do you want me to do? These people are going to die out here. They have nothing to drink. And the Lord told him his instruction. And I'm sure you can kind of guess what it was. It was to strike the rock once. Yeah, Moses had been here before. I've done this before. I've dealt with this before. I know how to do this. And something happened in the gap between Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, where Moses decided that God's instruction had just become a suggestion like everybody else's voice in his world. What happened in that gap? Have you ever heard of the saying that familiarity breeds contempt? I want to suggest that that's what happened. He became familiar with the voice of God. Oh, I've been here before. I know how to do this. I, I don't, I, I've, I've got my way in doing this. Mark 6 gives us an illustration of this with Jesus. Jesus had been around and he'd been visiting town after town and performing miracle after miracle and people were in awe of what Jesus was doing. And then he goes home to Nazareth and he walks into town expecting to be able to do exactly what he's been doing at every other town except they were familiar with him. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no, Jesus. Yeah, he used to kick the ball around these streets. He's a good kid. Jesus, we've known him for 30 years. He's not the son of God. He's the son of a carpenter. And their familiarity with who they thought Jesus was withheld not just uh, miracles in their world, but the very promise himself. I've been here before. I know what you said last time, God, and and it worked last time, so I'm just going to go with that. I wonder, do you let your familiarity with God and what he's done in the past stop him from doing a new thing today? We could come in here. Here's a familiar place. Familiar church, same old people, same old, we'll do the songs, they'll do the preach, it's a familiar place. I wonder if you today could come into a familiar place with a new expectation of God. Because you don't become familiar with God. You become intimate and you can become close, but not familiar because every time that you get close to God, you see he's doing a new thing and it does not breed contempt, it breeds wonder in your world. He's always doing a new thing. If you expect the same old thing from him, I would want a challenge that maybe you've become a bit familiar with him. Bob Goff says it like this, don't be surprised when a God that is described as being high above our ways is doing and working things out in a way that you don't understand. It might be today that God is asking you to do an old thing in a new way. So you can experience not just new results, but his promise in your life. Secondly, you can, you can see what Moses does to God. He goes, yeah, yeah, I've been here before, but I also, I know how to do it. He treats God not just with familiarity. He treats him like a formula. I got this. A plus B equals water out of rock. Got it. Got it. 
I've been here before. But God is also not a formula. He's not the cheat, like formula you put on the cheat sheet of life and just, if I just do A plus B, it's going to be fine. No, no, no. He, he doesn't want to be a formula to us. He wants to be our friend. And we see this uh, with Jesus gives us another incredible example when he's healing blind men. And we, we see him heal a blind man in Mark 8. And uh, he says, it says, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And then when he led him outside the village, he spat on him. And so as, after Jesus spat on him, he said, well, what do you see? And the guy goes, oh, I kind of like trees walking around. He goes, okay. And then he prays for him and lays hands on him. He's like, what do you see now? And he goes, oh, I see everything. Amazing. Blind man healed. In Mark 10, two chapters later, he sees another blind man, the blind beggar Bartimaeus. And I can imagine the people who were at the first blind healing would have thought, I know what he's going to do. Watch, watch. It's a bit weird. He kind of spits in their face and stuff, but it'll work. It'll work. And he walks up to Bartimaeus and he just goes, your faith has healed you. And he walks on. Oh, well, last time he spat in their face and so maybe he does a spit thing and a speak thing and that might just be the two blind formula things that he does. And so they wait and then John 9 tells us about another one in Jerusalem where Jesus healed another blind man, but this time, he did use spit this time, but he put it in the ground and he made some mud and he he put it on the guy's eyes. But this time, instead of just speaking and instead of just praying, he sent him out with, with an instruction. Obedience was part of this guy's healing and he had to wash off the mud. Now, our God is not a formula to be figured out, church. He is not a formula to be figured out. You know, uh, you know what wants God to be a formula? Religion. Religion results in formula where relationship results in freedom. Our God will not be put in a box and put on the shelf and we say, you stay there and don't do anything different because I know how to figure you out up there. He will not be put on the shelf. He wants us to be followed. He will do a new thing and take us new places if only we would incline our ear to him. Perhaps there's an area in your life where you've formulated God, where you put him in a box and just saying, yeah, I know, what he, I know God. I, I know God. Just shh. This is the way I do it. This is the way it's always been done. This is the way it works for me. Or maybe you have the attitude of surely he's not that interested in how I do this. Surely he doesn't care how I manage fill in the blank. But this illustration in Numbers 20 would beg to differ. God cares how we manage our lives. He cares about the intimate details of our life. It says that uh, in Numbers 20 that it's interesting to note that when Moses used the old way of striking the rock, the water still came out. There was still provision there. But this would teach us that even though there is the possibility that there is uh, God's provision in your life, you may be missing his promise. 
Just because by the grace of God, God has provided in an area doesn't mean you're walking in the promise for that area. There was water enough for them all that day. He provided the drink that they needed, but it wasn't the drink he wanted to give Moses. He wanted to give him the whole promised land. An example of this, everyone can probably relate to, is uh, finances. We all need them. We all kind of give our time for them and they give our time back. But could the way that you manage your finances be the very thing that's keeping you from the abundance God wants to bring in your life? I'm not trying to preach a good old prosperity message up here. I'm not. It's just an example But could it be the case that you need a miracle all the time in your finances because you refuse to use the wisdom God has outlaid in the scriptures for you? Could it be a result of our management that we end up in a place where we're in desperate need all the time when God's trying to give an overflow? Because God's supply in our life is not just for us. He he wants to put into us that we would be a conduit of blessings for other, but we can't be an overflow of blessings for other when we're always down begging for enough for ourselves. God gives us wisdom that we would be able to live in a way that we could pour over into other people's lives, not just beg for enough. He is the God of abundance. This can work in anything of your life. He cares how you manage your relationships. He cares how you parent. He cares how you treat your boss and the things you say behind their back. He cares. We cannot treat him like a formula. Today, could we ask ourselves, are my habits withholding God's blessing? Let's ditch the formula mentality for one of relationship, one that invites God's voice in and that we would not just be hearers, but we'd be doers. Thirdly, under honour, it's hard to go past a commentary on this passage without the commentator saying uh, that God was so disappointed in this story because Moses wanted a bit of self-glory. You'll notice as I I read out the story, he said, oh, should we bring water out of this rock? Like he had any kind of power to do that. Should we bring water out of this rock? But God had instructed to gather the people, and he said this, in front of their eyes, speak to the rock. Meaning, I want to do something to show my people something new. And in the moment where he was meant to turn people's eyes towards Jesus, he turned them to himself. Should we bring water out of this rock for you? I would suggest that this passage is best understood in light of the conversation that God and Moses first had in Exodus 4. You see, uh, Moses was out in the desert. He was on the run because um, he had killed an Egyptian and he left Egypt a long time ago but here he's out tending to these sheep and and this bush catches on fire. Lots of us will know the story. So the bush is doing its thing, the sandals are off, the holy ground is happening. It's all happening for Moses right now and we get a glimpse into this conversation that happens between God and Moses. 
And God says to Moses, you're going to go and be the deliverer of my people. You're, you're the one they've been waiting for. And Moses goes, oh, God, I don't know about this. Like, what if they don't believe me? He gives this, what if they don't believe me? And God goes, no, I've got it all covered. See that stuff in your hand? If you throw it down, it becomes a snake. That's cool. Bring it up. That's really cool. If they don't believe you with that, like, what you're going to do is you're going to get your hand and you're going to go like this and then they'll all every see and then you're going to go like that and it's going to be clean again. And then if they don't believe you after that, you're going to go get Nile, the Nile water, out, whatever, the river, get the water, pour it out. It's going to become blood. And surely the people are going to trust that you are the one I have sent. After all those signs, surely... And then we get down to the the real fear that Moses has. And he says, oh, God, I don't speak real well. I have a a stutter. I, I fumble my words. I am not eloquent of speech. Please don't get me to speak. And God looks at him and goes, hey, who's the one who made mouths? I did it. I'll teach you how to speak. I'll give you the words to say. And, and, and Moses looks at him and you can tell the fear and insecurity is just wellowing up. And he just goes, God, send someone else. And they keep talking about it and they figure out, don't worry, Moses will speak for you if you don't want to speak. But there's one line that, that ends that conversation in Exodus 4.17 and it says, take the staff in your hand so you can perform signs with it. You'll notice that his fear of speaking was now substituted with the staff. In light of this conversation, perhaps when Moses was asked to speak to the rock, that old fear rose up inside of him. I'm not real good at speaking. You know this, God. We talked about this. What if they they don't understand me? What if I speak so bad the rock speaks back and goes, what'd you say? And so God, and so Moses chose to go with the strong staff that he was confident he could use rather than trust that God would be enough in his weakness. One way would risk public failure and humiliation, but striking the rock, that brought him glory. It was meant to be God's word, not Moses' might that was brought about refreshment that day. I wonder what insecurities or weaknesses you won't allow God to use because you fear that he won't be enough. He won't be enough. See, sometimes God will bring supply through different avenues and different sources to challenge our attachments. Moses was so attached to that staff, the staff that had been thrown down and turned into a snake, the staff that had split the Red Sea, the staff that had been a symbol of power all throughout their journey. And when God wanted to do a new thing, he held on to the the symbol of the source of power rather than the source itself. I wonder what are your attachments that you refuse to let go of because God once used it? it. Could it be today he wants to do a new thing? But 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, He is strong in our weakness. And the second reason God gave Moses that he wasn't getting into the promise was trust. The lack of trust. 
the other half of why the, the reason for why Moses and Aaron were not going into the promised land. First, that they would not honour God as holy, but second, that they didn't trust him. Part of living an all-in faith kind of life means that we need to trust God. Simple to say up here on the stage with the microphone. It's a different thing when you're staring at a doctor's report that you don't understand. Or when you're looking at on the edge of divorce. Or when you're staring that addiction in the face again and you're just not sure if you could take another day sober or, or you're just not sure if you could forgive that person one more time. Trust God. But in situations, big or small, whether it's a brand new territory or whether you've been here before, having faith in these situations requires you to do this. Trust God's character will remain the same even when his methods don't. There will be times in our life that God asks us to do things and we just kind of look at him and go, I have no idea what you're doing, Lord. It's in those moments we say, I trust your character, even when I don't know what you're doing. Jesus gave us an example of this in in Mark 10 when he talks about the rich young ruler. You see, this, this rich young ruler, good man, runs up to Jesus and goes, teacher, teacher, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, he's saying, teacher, what must I do to live in every promise that you have given us? What must I do to live in the promise? And Jesus goes, well, you know, you know, no, you know, honor your mother and father, don't steal, don't kill. And he rattles off the law and the guy goes, yes, I've done that. I have done that since I was a little boy, nailed it. And Jesus looks at him and he just, he says, he looks with love. He says, but one thing you lack, sell everything. Sell that thing that you're so attached to, that source that you can't let go of. Sell everything. Don't worry, you'll have treasures in heaven and follow me. And he looked down sad and went away because he was very rich. It was like this rich young ruler was saying, yep, I've done the formula. I did it all. Surely that brings the promise. One thing you lack You don't trust what I'm offering you is going to be as good as what you've already got. And really, that's all that sin is. Sin is not trusting that God's way is going to be as good as yours. That on the other side of obedience won't be as good as this side of obedience. That what he's offering isn't going to be enough. But James urges us that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. Moses heard the word. He heard it. He was in God's presence. He was walking. He was ready, but he left the presence and went his own way. The rich young ruler heard the word, follow me. And he couldn't. He went his own way. Today, let's not be like Moses who was in the very presence of God and yet turned and went his own way. As I begin to close this morning, I just, 
I want to show you something that's within the two stories between Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Because the Bible is full of symbols. And one of the symbols is that Jesus is the rock. He's the rock. Which stands to reason why God was so grieved when Moses struck the rock when he was asked to speak to it. Because these stories are, are, are just merely a shadow. They're merely trying to get the big picture across to us. There's another story within the story for you and I to see. Because in Exodus 17, the first time the rock needed to be struck. Because the rock was representing Jesus. The rock needed to be struck in the same way that Jesus' body was going to be struck for us. It needed to be broken for the water to come out. The same way that Jesus' side would be pierced and water would gush once he was broken. The rock needed to be broken the first time. But in the second account, there was no need for the rock to be struck. No. All that God required was for the word to be spoken. Speak the word. Instead, Moses thought that his own efforts, his work, his, his work would bring about the water of refreshment for people. But that's not the picture God wanted to paint. The instruction was to speak to the rock because after Jesus' body was broken for you and I, no longer was there any work that needed to be done for you and I to access the refreshing living waters of Christ. Even if we doubled all of our efforts, even if we did the formula the best that we possibly could, it would not be enough for us to be good before the Lord. The work that Jesus has done in our place was completely complete and that was enough. No longer was he meant to strike the rock. And all we need to do is open our mouth and speak and invite the drink that never runs dry. Because really that's the message the Bible is trying to tell us. We can look at story after story after story and if we peel back, we'll see that God is trying to tell us this one thing, that Jesus has done it all in our place. This is what he doesn't want us to miss. While there's lessons within the story of Moses today, and I pray that you have inclined your ear to the warnings he has left us. But if you hear nothing else, hear this and know that it is true, that you do not need to strive for his affection, that you do not need to work for his approval. There is nothing you could do that makes you more worthy before God except the finished work of Jesus. All you need to do is believe and speak. Romans 10, 9 to 10 in the message version says it like this, that's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation. With your whole being, embrace God, setting things right. And when you say it, say it right out loud. God has set everything right between me and him. That's why the penalty was so harsh for Moses and Aaron that you and I would not mistake that it was our work that we access Jesus by, but the finished work of Jesus Christ. Where are you trying to formulate God today? 
What insecurities are you not surrendering to Jesus because you just think, oh, no, 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 no. We've talked about that. We are not going there, Lord. What instructions has God given you for your life may have been years ago that you stubbornly refuse to obey. Because God is always doing a new thing. And I guarantee you that his promises are true. That he is the rock in which you can build your life upon. He is steady and sure. He will not fail you if you would only honor him as holy and trust him with your life. Can we stand as the musicians come? If that's you today and you hear about this Jesus that I've been speaking of, and you think, you know what? I had him in a bit of a box. I, thought, I kind of thought he was for those crazy religious people, but you're kind of telling me that there's a whole lot of freedom I can experience in Jesus. You're kind of telling me that I don't have to jump through hoops to get to him. And you know what? That is exactly what I'm telling you. That everything that you could do to come to God has already been done. The only thing left for you is to believe in your heart and speak with your mouth. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to use this moment to extend an invitation to you. If you would like to invite this Jesus into your heart today, while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, as we give privacy, would you just give me a little wave and then pop your hand back down? Thank you. Thank you. Because he is the sure and steady rock in which you can build your life. As we keep our eyes closed, would we all repeat after me, Lord Jesus, what you've done is enough. I believe in my heart that everything is right between you and me. In Jesus' name, amen. While we stay in this moment of prayer, perhaps today you know that there's been areas you've put God in a box, could be small, could be large, and you just think, I've kept you out of that for too long. There could be things that God wants to do a new thing in a new way, and you are just holding on to that past thing because it's been so good and it's all you know, and you're a little scared to step out in the new thing today. Would you come to Jesus and release all of your fears and all of your insecurities and all of your anxieties and say, I just, I trust you. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. And we have a few minutes. So if you would like prayer this morning, I'd love to invite you to come. Whatever it is, small or large, we would love to pray and stand with you. But let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Forgive us for the times that we hear and we do not do. Forgive us for the times that we are so stubborn that we turn our back towards you and go our own way. Lord, would you lead us? Would you do a new thing in our hearts today? Would you do a new thing in this church today? Would you do a new thing in this city today, Father? We come... We come to you, Lord.
treat you as holy and to tell you we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we worship, if you need prayer, please come down the front.